Welcome to the Crosswalk Community Church Podcast. We good? How are you guys doing? Good? We had a little bit of a Christmas hangover for all the NPCs a little bit? Okay. Um, as always, I'd like to thank you for any opportunity I get to do this with you guys. So um, I always say it's also part of because of you. So thank you very much for that opportunity. Um, hopefully you haven't run out of, run me out of here yet, so hopefully you won't today either. But So over the next five weeks, we are going to be in a series called Be the Move. Pastor Keith has kind of mentioned this a little bit already. It's a series where we will be articulating the things that we believe are necessary for every person to thrive in their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, this is really a series on the vision or mission that the Lord has for Crosswalk as a church as we move forward. For some reason, Pastor Keith has asked me to open this sermon series today. He was probably feeling ill or something. Um, so I will be sharing the first part of that series. So the most basic way that we can articulate our goal at Crosswalk Community Church is that our purpose is to help people from all walks of life to walk with Christ. Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. There really isn't a greater purpose for God's church. So what we're going to try to do is over the next five weeks, is talk about that process of how this happens at Crosswalk. Our goal is to inspire each of us to get passionate about the things God has set for us to thrive in a Christian faith, to bring us together, to unify us, to focus us, to rally us to these values that the Bible gives us as a church. So today's the start of that. So the first step of this process is belief or believing. So we hear all the time, that all we need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's all great and dandy, but what are we believing in? What are we implying? What are we asking people or encouraging them to place their trust in? Before we can even talk to people about these things, which is another job that we have, we have to know what we believe, the, what the basic fundamental Christian beliefs are. Then we have to be able to articulate them with clear evidences. And that's what we're going to try to do today. That's why we're here. I'd like to present the evidences of the Christian faith. Some of it, okay? We're not going to go through a six-hour systematic theology lesson. I don't think you guys would want to sit through that. I'm not saying you're not good Christians or anything, but that's just too much to ask on Clearly the hangover from Christmas. So we're going to try to narrow it down a little bit, okay? I want to present some things that will help us to start thinking in terms of what am I believing in, what am I professing, what am I committing to, and is it all just emotionally driven, or is there intellectual evidences for my belief and faith? Is there something beyond just how it makes me feel that connects me to what I believe? So think of today as like a journey, all right? We don't really know where we're going, we don't really know where we're starting, but we're going on a journey to discover what it is as Christians and what it is as a church that we believe. But the challenge was doing it a little differently, okay? Because like I said, we could just, to find out what we believe, we could skim through the Bible and say we believe this or this or this or this, or we could even just listen to that Newsboys song, and then we'd be out of here in no time, because they pretty much just say what we believe anyways. But I didn't want to do that, so I had to try to make this more of a reactionary journey, right? God reveals himself to us in several ways. He shows us that he is here and he wants to be in a relationship with us. 
Think of those as the signposts that guide us on our journey of belief to discovering what it is we believe as Christians and also what we believe as a church. So instead of doing it ourselves and eventually screwing it up because that's what we do, let's make it easy and let's look at what God has already shown us. Now some of this may sound familiar to some of you. I did it at a prayer breakfast. I did it on the Matt and Pat show. If you listen to that, you should. It's a really good show. Um, So it may sound a little bit familiar, but we're going more in depth today, so I hope that it's not too repetitive for you because it ties into what we're going to try to accomplish today. So one more thing you have to remember before we get started is today isn't just about discovering what we believe, but how do we know what we believe is true? It's one thing to make a claim to somebody. It's another thing entirely to give evidence for that claim, to show somebody that what you're believing actually is true or is reasonably true or has a reasonable case of being true. So you've already heard the word evidence already, and you're going to hear it a lot more today. And I don't want that to be a detractor for you, as a lot of people feel like evidence is. To me, the nature of evidence is it it strengthens your faith. It makes faith more real. It doesn't just detract from faith. It helps us to know that God wants us to believe in him, and he wants us to be in a relationship with him. Because remember, God wants that, right? That's why we're here. That's, that's, That's kind of why we're... We're doing all this stuff. If God didn't want to be in our lives, he wouldn't show us any part of himself and the fact that he's here and he wants to be in a relationship with us. So just think of evidence as just God saying, look, I'm here. Let's have a relationship together. Let's be in communion with one another. So it makes faith more real. It doesn't detract from it. And that's because God is the one that gives us all this evidence. So as I said, on our journey, we have four signposts that guide us along the way, right? Those four signposts are broken into two groups. Okay, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is how God reveals himself to us in general ways, ways that are applicable to everybody. Special revelation is how God reveals himself to us in more specific ways, okay? Now, this is how we're going to go through each sign. We're going to get to the sign. We're going to state what we believe as a church, as Christians. We're going to state what scripture has to say about it. But, and more importantly, we're not going to end there, okay? We're going to bring in some of that godly evidence as well, some of that extra-biblical evidence as well, as it is my hope that there is somebody here today, hopefully more than one, somebody who here who is not a Christian, who has not made that commitment to make Jesus as their Savior. So we're going to bring in some extra good godly evidence that he has given us to show you why it is we believe these things. It's not simply because it's written on a page, but because... God has given us good evidence to believe these things. So that's what, that's what we're going to do today. That's the goal. That's what we're going to try to do today, or I'm going to try to do. And hopefully I don't lose you along the way, because that would make me very sad. So our first group today is called General Revelation, how God reveals himself to us in general ways, right? So there are two signs in General Revelation, creation and consciousness. The first one, obviously, is creation. The first sign that God gives us on our journey is creation itself. As Christians, as members of Crosswalk, we believe God is the creator of the universe and everything in it. So when I speak of the universe here, I want you to think the universe is like a container, okay? And everything in the container, planets, stars, meteors, asteroids, us, people, everything on Earth is in that container. So God is the maker of everything in that container, but he's also the maker of the container itself. That's kind of what I'm getting at here. We as Christians believe this because Genesis clearly states it in chapter 1, verse 1. Everybody knows Genesis 1, 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. 
It's a very beautiful, simple sentence, but it says a lot, and a lot of times we gloss over that. But we've come to the point where, what is some of that other godly evidence that God has given us to show that he is the creator of everything that we know exists, right? So today I want to introduce something to you called the cosmological argument for God's existence, also for God being the creator of all things, okay? So what this is, this is here, by the way, because Chad is the man, so everyone thank Chad before we leave, because or else I'd have to try to articulate all this myself, and that wouldn't be very good. So what this is, it is a simple uh, two-premise philosophical model. How this works is that the first two lines are the premises, and the third line is the conclusion. Now, if any of the two premises are false or proven to be false, then the conclusion is also false. But if both premises are proven to be true, or at least have a reasonable chance of being true, then it follows that the conclusion is also true, right? So what's the first one? Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Patrick, what in the world does that mean? Well, that means that everything that has ever existed, everything that has ever been here, has a reason or a cause for being here, whether it's you or me or this building or plants or animals or the earth itself. Everything that has ever existed has a cause or a reason for being here. Now again, how do we know this is true? Well, simple everyday experience tells us that things don't just pop into existence for no reason at all. That's a very good thing because if I was standing here today and a tiger just popped into existence out of nowhere right here, I love you guys to death, but I would be the first one out that door. So, I'm going to be looking there all day now. Luckily, we know that that doesn't happen because if it did, why don't we see this happen more often? If things just pop into existence for no reason, where's the evidence of that? Why don't we see this happening all the time? Simple experience and everyday logic tells us that no, everything that begins to exist has a cause or a reason for it being here. They're not just here for no reason. So premise one looks to be somewhat true. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Now, do we know this is true? Well, we actually do have empirical evidence for this, right? In 1929, this guy named Edwin Hubble, you guys know the Hubble telescope? Big giant thing in the sky, let's just look at everything. In 1929, Edwin Hubble was actually able to observe the redshift matter in space that proved the expansion of the universe. If something's expanding, you trace that back, obviously there is a starting point. There's a point where the universe began. I know what you're thinking, Patrick. You're starting to say things you shouldn't say in a church, okay? But let me, let me explain. Let's go back to Genesis 1.1. As a Christian, there is nothing wrong, there's nothing dishonorable with believing the universe had a beginning, and I will tell you why. What does Genesis say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The two key words you've got to focus on there are beginning and created. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means at some point in time, there was no heavens and earth. There was no universe. There was no container with everything in it. It was just God. There was nothing else because it says he created it. He brought it forth. It doesn't say in Genesis that in the beginning, God coexisted with the heavens and the earth or God was always here with the heavens and the earth. No, it says he created it, which means it's here because of him, and it's here, it came into a point at a certain point in time. So it says clearly that, yes, the universe did have a beginning, and it's okay to believe that because, right, it's in Scripture. So, premise two, the universe began to exist. Is there anything wrong with believing that? I don't think so. As a Christian, it says it in the Bible, so. And we also have empirical evidence through Edwin Hubble's observations in 1929, that the universe is expanding, so yes, it did have a beginning. So, back up, hold the phone, let's go back. 
Premise one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Is this true? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Charlie. We know this is true because everyday experience tells us Tiger's still not here. We're good. <laughs> Premise two, the universe began to exist. We know this is true because of Evan Hubble and what he saw, but also because the scripture corroborates that. It says in the beginning, God made everything. Well, that still means there was a beginning. That means there was a point before that where God didn't make everything and it was just him. Ergo, there was a beginning. So the universe has a cause. The universe has a reason for being here. The, the, the thing that everybody fights about, the thing that everybody debates about, is what is that cause? Why is the universe here? Some people think it's God. I think it's God. Some people think the universe caused itself, whatever, whatever. We don't have time to get into that. But basically, the universe has a cause for being here. It has a reason for being here. We as Christians believe that that reason is God because it's the best possible explanation as God has to be beyond or outside of the universe to bring the universe here. So, let's review our belief. As Christians, this first sign that God has given us, we believe that God is the creator of the universe and everything in it. Why do we believe this? Because it says clearly in Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth, so God pretty much created everything. But it also, we believe this, because the cosmological argument teaches us that the universe had a beginning, and that beginning, therefore, has to be outside of the universe, has to bring it forward to begin it to exist. And as Christians, we believe that that cause is God, the guy that we are here today worshiping, right? So that's our first sign. Pretty cool. We on board so far? Only three left. We haven't even started, we haven't barely started, but we're on the way. All right. So our second part of general revelation, the way that God reveals himself to us in general ways that are applicable to everybody, is consciousness. So think of consciousness as the soul argument, if you will. As Christians, we believe that human beings are self-aware of our own identity. We are aware of our place in the grand scheme of everything. Let's go again. This is in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So being made in God's image, we are set apart from the rest of creation. We are in a higher regard because we are made in the very image of God himself. We are a reflection of him or a resemblance of him on this earth. We are different from the rest of creation for another reason as well, because we make decisions based on what's called morality, not just instinct. We can see the evidence of God's handiwork in ourselves with what's called the moral law. Now, what's the moral law? Basically, what that states is that we as human beings are able to identify something that's called objective evil. Now, what is objective evil? Well, that is that there are things in this world that are unanimously agreed upon as being evil, okay? And it's not just the guy who cuts in front of you in front of the grocery store or something like that, but there are things out there that everybody agrees upon is, yes, that is evil, that is bad. Well, how do we know that that is bad? You cannot know something is bad unless you first know what is good. C.S. Lewis once said that a man cannot call a line crooked unless he has some idea what a straight line looks like. And we have that because we have the perfect standard of good in God, and he has put his law or his nature, because his goodness is his very nature, on our hearts, right? That's what the moral law is. Now, this is unanimous, it's applicable to everybody, because even if you don't believe in God, even if you don't acknowledge his existence, 
if what we covered in the first sign is true, it doesn't mean you were created by him, which means he's still imprinted on your heart, whether you acknowledge that or not, which means we all have the capacity to know between good and evil because we all have that perfect standard of good written on our hearts. That's why it's universal. That's why it applies to everybody. That's why it's the moral law for all of us to have. So, let's review our belief. As Christians, we believe, as members of Crosswalk, we believe that God created human beings in his own image. We are set apart from the rest of creation. We are on a higher standard than everything else. We have the moral law. We have God's great, perfect goodness written inside of us. Therefore, we are able to differentiate between what is good and what is bad, and this is applicable to all human beings, whether you're a Christian or whether you're an atheist, whether you're whatever you believe, does it mean that you weren't made by the same God, and therefore his great and good nature is not written on your hearts? Make sense? You guys with me? Of course you are. You're all smarter than I am anyways. So, that is general revelation. That's how God reveals himself to us in general ways, applicable ways. That's the, that's the answer to the question of, what about the guy in the jungle that's never heard of God? What happens to him when he dies? Well, that guy doesn't exist because he still has general revelation. He still has creation, and he still has his own consciousness to tell him there's something going on here. But now we go to special revelation. Now we're going to the ways that God reveals himself to us in specific ways, right? The first one of that is the Holy Bible. We as Christians believe that God reveals himself to us through the inspiration of Scripture. Okay, we believe that the Holy Bible is the inspired word of God himself. We believe this because it says this in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, what Paul uses a phrase here called God-breathed. The Greek word for that is theonoustos. This word is never used in scripture up until that point. Some people even think that Paul made it up to try to convey the divine nature of what he's talking about. What he's saying is that it's not the writers themselves. They are more the vessels that are transferring the words onto the page. Remember, whenever you're doing something for God, for his will, you're just a vessel. You're just being used by the Holy Spirit to do whatever it is God wants you to do. It's the same with, with inspiration. It's the actual words on the page that are breathed out by God himself. They just were written down by whoever he chose to do it. That's what Paul's talking about here when he says inspiration of God breathed. But again, we come to the same problem. What else do we have to show us that we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God? Because if you're talking to a non-Christian, inspiration doesn't really mean much to them. There's, it's just words on a page. It's not the same to you. Inspiration or the belief that the Bible is the inspired word of God usually comes after conversion. It usually comes after you accept Jesus as your Savior. So what do you do? What else can we show to, to give people the clear evidences that we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Well, let's simplify it a little bit. What do we have to show people that the Bible's reliable? That it's factual? That, yeah, what was actually written actually happened. What do we have for that? Well, we're focusing on the New Testament today because the Old Testament's been around so long, most people don't even question it anymore. I guarantee you that most people, when you talk to them and they criticize the reliability of Scripture, they're talking about the New Testament because that has all the Jesus stuff in it, and if that stuff's true, they might actually have to change their life and they don't want to do that. So that's what they're going to attack. So that's what you need to know. How do we know the New Testament is reliable? How do we know that what it says or what we have today is what was actually written 1,500 years ago? So what we have for that is something called the manuscript record. 
What is the manuscript record? Well, thanks for asking. I'll tell you what the manuscript record is. What it is is that, you've got to remember, historians have to somehow figure out how do we know what actually happened this long ago. There's no telephones. There's no real accurate record keeping. There's nothing like that. So how do we know what happened? How do we know that what document we have today that was originally written so long ago is what was originally written? Because you've got to remember, the original Gospels, the original epistles of Paul, everything in the New Testament is written on what's called papyrus. Papyrus just doesn't last that long. So we don't have the originals anymore, the what do you call autographs. What we have are copies or manuscripts. What would happen is Paul or somebody would write down their gospel or their letter. They would send it like Paul would send his to Corneth. And then they'd get it at Corneth. They'd make a copy. Give it to somebody else. They'd make a copy. Give it to somebody else. They'd make a copy. You get the idea. You make copies and you spread them out. And that's how the New Testament was dispersed in the early days. That's how God's word was spread. So how historians measure how accurate a document that we have today is, is how many copies of it do we have? The more copies you have, the better idea you have of painting a picture of what was originally written. Makes sense, right? Because the more you have, the better idea you have. So, let's look at the New Testament. How many copies do we have? This is of, as of 2014, because they haven't updated it yet, so I couldn't get you any, anything later. But as of 2014, we have almost 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts. Whether that's a manuscript of the whole New Testament, a manuscript of a whole book, a manuscript of four verses, it doesn't matter, they're all count, because they all help you identify what was originally written. Almost 6,000 Greek ones. Those are the most important ones, as Greek was the original language the New Testament was written in. But we don't just have Greek. We have over 10,000 manuscripts in Latin, and we have over five to 10,000 in other languages. Those would have been Coptic, Armenian, Georgian, all those fun languages. So for a total of over 25,000 manuscripts, okay? Now, without context, was that a lot? Was that a little? Was that good? Are we hopeless? Do we not know anything about the New Testament? Well, I'll give you an example. The next highest amount we have from that time period is Homer's Iliad. You guys know the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? Everybody knows the Odyssey. The Iliad was Homer's book about the Trojan War, what happened before the Odyssey, right? The next highest amount of manuscripts we have from this time period is of Homer's Iliad with just over 600. 25,600. So do we know for sure what the New Testament originally said? Yeah, we have a good idea because we have so many copies of it. It's absolutely astounding when you realize you had all these uneducated carpenters and fishermen copying all these manuscripts, copying and copying and spreading out and spreading out. And we still have all these today. It's truly remarkable when you realize how God preserves his word and how it will always be preserved. And the context just helps you to realize how many we have, and they're still finding more. This is of 2014. They're still finding more and more and more manuscripts. To me, that's just amazing, but I get geeked out about that stuff. So, The reliability of the New Testament is also cooperated by something different. Let me give you one more piece, okay? It's also authenticity by authorship date. Now, what do I mean by that? Authorship date. Another way that historians gauge whether something is accurate is when was it written and compared to the events it records, right? Because what happens is, the line of thought, is that if something happened 300 years before it was recorded, well, that's a lot of time for, for myth, for embellishment, for legend to creep in and change the story. You guys remember the game Telephone? You'd sit in a line and somebody at the start would say something and then you see how it would change at the end. 
I, I thought it was stupid. I mean, there's no point to it. There's no competition for it, but whatever. We used to play it in school. It's telephone, right? You say something at the beginning, and at the very end of the line, it would be totally different because the message would change. Well, it's the same line of thinking. The more gap you have between when something's recorded and when the events happen, the more likely that, re that recording of the events is not as accurate as it could be because there's been so much time. So, what about the New Testament? Well, let's look at the Gospels, right? Arguably the most important ones as they're the biography of Jesus' life. So I gotta spread out for this. You gotta follow me on this one. So let's start here, right? No, let's not start there. That's right here. The unanimous overall agreed upon date, Jesus' death and resurrection, is around 30 AD. So this is 30 AD right here, okay? Now to gauge whether the Gospels were written super far away or close to it, they actually work backwards. It's kind of funny. So 30 AD is right here. Jesus died right here, rose again. We go over here. Okay, so we start right here, okay, with the book of Acts. Acts was written by Luke. Luke is the second part of a two-part letter to his friend Theophilus, right? Well, Luke, I mean, Acts ends with Paul and house arrest in Rome, right? Okay, now everything we know about Luke as a historian is that he was the historian of the top grade. There is no mention of Paul's death in Acts. There was no mention of the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans in Acts, which happened in the AD 70, which Jesus predicted, which is kind of cool. Anyways, so Acts ends without mentioning Paul's death, which is very reasonable for us to believe that Acts was written before Paul died. Well, Paul died in 64 or 65 AD, right here, okay? So that means Acts had to be written before Paul died, or at least there's good reason to think that. That means Acts was written at the latest, early 60s, late 50s AD, right? Remember, Acts is the second part of the two-part letter. The first part is Luke's Gospel, written to his friend Theophilus. So, if Paul died in 64 AD, Acts is written before that, that's early 60s, late 50s AD. That means Luke had to be written even earlier. So let's say mid to late 50s AD. Well, Resurrection's 30 AD, we're, we're pretty close, right? We're not done yet. Luke wasn't the first Gospel written, Mark was. We know this because Luke and Matthew take aspects of Mark's gospel, the verbiage, sentence structure, stuff like that, and put it in their own. So Mark was written before Luke. So, Paul died in 64 AD. Luke doesn't record that in Acts. You'd think he would, because he was a really good historian. So that means Acts was written before Paul died, which means it was written early 60s, late 50s AD. Acts is the second part of a two-part letter, the first being Luke, which means Luke had to be written before Acts. Well, Acts was written, I mean, Luke was written, so... Mid to late 50s, yeah. But Luke wasn't the first gospel written, Mark was. Which means Mark had to be written even earlier, which is mid to early 50s. The resurrection is at 30 AD. That's less than 30 years. That's the same generation. You have a first-hand account of the details of Jesus' life and death being written less than 30 years after it happened. Again, the same generation. Again, without context, is this good? Is it bad? Is this stink? Is it terrible? Well, I'll give, you, I'll give you a clue. You guys know Alexander the Great, right? He died before Jesus. Alexander the Great died, right? The best biography of Alexander the Great's life that we have was written by Plutarch 400 years after he died. I'm not going to walk that far, so you just have to visualize it when you that room. So, 400 years for Alexander the Great, we have a first-hand account of Jesus' life less than 30 years after he died in Rosalind. 30 years, 400 years. It's funny how nobody questions Alexander's life. 
funny how that happens, if they do for Jesus. So again, the New Testament, we believe, is reliable. We believe as Christians, the Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe this because it says it in, in 2 Timothy, but we also believe this because the New Testament has very good evidence for being reliable because we have over 25,000 New Testament manuscripts. The next highest we have is Homer's Iliad with just over 600. We also believe it's reliable because you have a firsthand account of Jesus' life and death less than 30 years or within the same generation of it happening, whereas the next highest we have in history is a good example we have is Alexander the Great is 400 years. That's a long time for stuff to creep in that didn't actually happen. It's amazing when you think about just how reliable God's word is. And you don't even have to be a Christian to realize it. And there's lots of people out there who aren't. There are New Testament critics and scholars who aren't Christian. They'll tell you that. But they will be the first ones to tell you that, yeah, this is the most reliable thing we have. It's amazing how that happens. So the final sign, so three signposts down, right? We're almost there, end of the journey. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. The final signpost that we have on our journey, the final way that God reveals himself to us, is through the person of Jesus Christ himself. Now, this is the most powerful way that God does it, but it's also the most challenging way, because you can talk about God all you want, but as soon as you bring up Jesus Christ, you're going to lose people. For some reason, you're going to lose people. Now, we could spend all day talking about the importance and the teachings of Jesus Christ. You can spend a lifetime studying them. But when it comes to Christ, if there is a foundational aspect when it comes to Jesus, it's the DDR. It's his deity, it's his death, and his resurrection. Everything else is kind of, I don't want to say water on the bridge, but it just doesn't compare to that. That is why Christ came. That is his mission. That is his purpose. That's why we're sitting here worshiping him. You guys are trying not to fall asleep listening to me. So, the DDR is deity, death, and resurrection. Rabbi Zacharias is a Christian evangelist. He has a quote that says, Jesus Christ did not come to earth to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. That's why he came. And we start with his deity. We start with his claim to be God. Okay, and our, our scripture for that is John 1, 1 through 5. Everybody knows John 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus claimed to be God, okay? You can argue whether he actually was or not, but you can't argue whether he actually claimed it. He accepted worship, he performed miracles, but the biggest undeniable fact you have for Jesus claiming to be God is he was crucified. Why was he crucified if he did not claim to be God? Now, we know as Christians that he had to die anyways, but the Romans could not find any fault with him, remember? They weren't the ones that were yelling, please kill this guy for us. And you could see why, because he said, love your neighbor, pay taxes to Caesar. That's all the Romans cared about, really. So why would they crucify him? No, they wanted to because he claimed to be God, which was blasphemous, which was a punishable by death offense. Remember, before Jesus died, he was arrested, which means a charge was brought upon him. That's why he was crucified. You can argue whether he was or not, but you can't argue that he claimed to be God himself, which brings us to him dying, his death. For that uh, event, we have Mark chapter 15, 24 and 25. As Christians, we believe Jesus Christ died for our sins, right? That's kind of like, if there was a bumper sticker for being a Christian, that's kind of it. Jesus died for my sins. Everybody knows that. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Then you go to verse 37. It says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry 
and breathed his last. So Jesus died by crucifixion. Patrick, everybody knows this. Why do you have to bring all this extra boring evidence to show us that Jesus actually died? Well, believe it or not, for the longest time, people did not believe that Jesus Christ was even a real person. They thought that this was a myth. They thought that he was made up by the Bible, by his disciples. I know it's hard to believe now, but that actually was the case. We have 45 ancient sources, 45 old, old, really old people that attest to Jesus Christ being a living, breathing, real person. Of those 45 sources, 28 tell us that he died by crucifixion. 28. That's a lot, people. You're not nearly as excited as I am. And I don't. 12 of those, 28 are non-Christian, right? Those 28 people, 12 of them are non-Christian, which means they have no bias, they have no reason to say that it happened other than the fact that it actually did. Of those 28 people that speak of his death, 14 even give details pertaining to it happening. They tell about the crucifixion, how he was killed, the fact that he was stabbed in the side, all that stuff. Of those 45, what is that, over, almost over half? Over half speak of his death. That's just astounding. It's amazing. But again, without his death, his death is important, but without the resurrection, it doesn't mean the same thing. So for the resurrection, we go to Matthew 28, 5 and 6. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Now there's a great line of argumentation to give evidence for the fact that we as Christians believe Jesus Christ rose on the third day, right? It's called the minimal facts approach. I unfortunately don't have time for that today as we're wrapping up, but Kathy was gracious enough to allow me to share it with the teens. I'm hoping that something good happened there and they remembered it. But basically what it says is that from the facts that we have of that time period, Jesus rising from the grave is the best possible explanation. So you have something like the sudden change in the disciples, right? You guys remember that when Jesus was arrested, they ran away. They were caught, they were scared. Well, except Peter, but that's a different problem. They ran away. They were scared because they're just, they're just fishermen. They're carpenters. They're not soldiers, right? Well, then uh, something happened, and now you have all the disciples proclaiming the, the risen Christ, traveling all over the world, and eventually all giving their lives for this happening. Something has to explain that. Why did they change like that? You have to explain the empty tomb. The fact that there's no evidence anywhere to show that they went back to the tomb, pulled out a body, and said that these guys are crazy. He's still here. He didn't rise. You have to explain that. You have to explain the conversion of Jesus' brother James. James was a skeptic. Remember, Jesus' own family thought he was crazy when he went back to Nazareth. But then James changes, and now he is the head of the first church or the early church in Jerusalem, also gave his life for his faith. You have to explain the conversion of Paul, Paul especially, because he was an enemy of the church. He was persecuting Christians, and then he claims to see the risen Christ, and then arguably becomes the church's greatest missionary, also giving his life for his faith. Something has to explain all this stuff, right? Something had to have happened for all this to happen. There's several theories out there. Some are really fun, and it would be great to go through them, but again, we don't have time. But let's, let's tackle a few common ones, right? So a very common theory is that the disciples just stole the body, okay? That's been around since the beginning, because if you read Matthew, that's what the Pharisees told the Romans to say. Say the disciples stole the body. Well, that doesn't explain a lot of things, though. One, it doesn't explain the change in the disciples themselves. Martyrs make bad liars. If you know you are proclaiming something that is false, you're not going to give your life for it, especially when you have nothing to gain for it. It's not like you had a life insurance policy you could cash in if they killed you for your faith. No, these, these guys gained nothing from this. So why would they do it if they knew what they were doing was false? Also, the disciples stealing the body doesn't explain Paul's conversion. 
Why would Paul, an enemy of the church, all of a sudden become the greatest missionary ever that the church had if the risen Christ didn't appear to him and he didn't see it because it didn't happen because the disciples stole the Bible? You still have to explain that change, right? You still have to explain why Paul changed like that and why James changed like that. So the disciples stole the body, not really a good theory, right? The only other theory I can think of to cover is what's called the hallucination theory. That's the most common one today. That just says that the disciples hallucinated Jesus. He didn't really rise, and we're all just wasting our time here. Well, yeah, there's some crazy drugs back then. The biggest problem with that is hallucinations are not group phenomena. We know that Jesus appeared to groups of many people, many hundreds of people. Hallucinations are individual events. They're like dreams. You can't wake up one day and call your buddy and say, man, wasn't that an awesome dream last night that we had? It's, you can't do that. It doesn't happen. It's the same with hallucinations. You just don't, they're not, they're individual events. They're not group phenomena. The hallucination doesn't explain the tomb being empty. If these guys started, remember, they started proclaiming this in Jerusalem, the very city which he was killed. If, as soon as they started saying all this, all they had to do was go and cover the tomb, pull the body out, and say, look, these guys are crazy. They're on those great drugs or whatever it is that it is. There's no evidence of this ever happening, though. In fact, it's the opposite. They said the disciples stole the body, which proves that the tomb was empty, okay? And again, the hallucination theory doesn't explain Paul or James' conversion. Paul was an enemy of the church. He was not in the frame of mind to grieve Jesus and miss him, which they thought was why the disciples hallucinated him. And you still have to explain Paul's conversion. So you go through all these facts. Basically, when you come down to the end of it, the best explanation for what happened is that Jesus actually rose from the grave. But people won't accept that, admit that, because it's not just a head issue, it's a heart issue. Because if Jesus actually is God and did actually rise from the grave, that means that's a big change for your life that people don't want to make. So they take that free will that God has given them and they use it to say, eh, it didn't happen. But you just can't deny the evidence that we have. You can't deny what it is that we believe about Christ. As Christians, as crosswalk, what do we believe about Jesus? We believe that he claimed to be God. We believe that he died for our sins on the cross, and we believe that he rose again on the third day. We believe this because Scripture says it clearly, but we also believe it because he said he was God. We believe that he died on the cross because it's just an accepted historical fact. You can't really argue with it anymore. And we also believe he rose from the grave because it's the best possible explanation for the events that we know did happen, such as... Paul changing, James changing, the disciples changing. It doesn't explain, none of the other theories explain all those as well as the resurrection does. So that was four signs, right? We're done, right? That was all four of them? You guys still with me? Worship, if you guys want to come up, we're going to close. So, what was our goal today? Yeah, you got to get up and stretch, right? Yeah, that was long. What was our goal today? Our goal was to discover what it is we believe as a church, what it is we believe as Christians. We're shaping what we believe based on the signs that God has left us. But it's not just what we believe, but how do we know what we believe is true? It was what Scripture says about it, but also what is some other evidences that God has given us that we know that we can use to strengthen our own faith, but also share it with other people as well. So we believe as Christians, God is the creator of all things. We believe this because Scripture says it. But the cosmological argument teaches us that God, or that the universe had a beginning, therefore it has a cause, it has a reason for being here. We as Christians also believe that we as human beings are made in God's own image. We are a resemblance of him. Nothing else that's ever been created can say that. We are set apart from the rest of creation. And because of that, we have God's innate goodness inside of us that we are able to use 
to differentiate between what is good and what is bad as applied to everybody. We also believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is breathed out by God through people, written down on a page. We believe this because of Scripture, but we also believe and have good evidence for the New Testament being at least reliable because we have so many copies of it. We know what was originally said, but we also know that the events they record are pretty accurate because they were written so close to when they actually happened. The rest of history just doesn't even compare to it. And as Christians, we also believe Jesus Christ claimed to be God. He died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again on the third day. You ask any second grader that can tell you that as a Christian, Jesus died for me. I know this because the Bible tells me so, right? We also know this because history tells us that Jesus was a real person, that he actually did die, and that his resurrection is the best explanation for what happened, for what actually happened all those years ago, right? So that is what we believe as a church. That is what we believe as Christians, and that is why we believe it as well, which is just as important. So if you look on the bottom of your sermon note sheet, it says that new life began when I believed. It's kind of our key phrase, right? Paul speaks of becoming a new creation the moment you accept Jesus as Savior. The Holy Spirit enters your heart and soul, and you cast away your old self, right? That new creation, like as we've discovered the universe, has a beginning, and that beginning is when you believe. Committing your life to Jesus is a decision that is made daily, and the motivating factor for making that decision is that you believe the truth about him. So they're going to sing, close us in a song. I'm going to open the altars up like we always do. You can come forward, you can take your seat, but when you have a chance to pray today, when you have a chance to talk to God, think about what it is that we covered, what it is that we believe as Christians what it is that we believe as a church. I ended with Jesus specifically, because that way, in case you forgot the rest of it, he'd be fresh in your mind. My question I want to ask you, as we come to a time of prayer, is what do you believe about Jesus? Who do you think that he was? Who do you think that he claimed to be? What do you think that he did? If you don't believe what we recovered, what's keeping you from that? What barrier is in the way that's keeping you from accessing that sort of information or processing it in your brain to believe that maybe he actually did do all these things. What's that barrier? Let's, let's figure that out. Is it another question that you have? Is it something else that you're just not sure about? Well, let's talk about it. Find me, find somebody, talk about it. That doesn't mean, just because I don't have an answer or somebody else has an answer, doesn't mean there isn't an answer that we can find for you. Is it, it's not that, maybe it's not that you're questioning something about Jesus historically, but maybe it's something in your heart. Maybe People at church were mean to you, or you had a bad experience with a church family before. Let's talk about that. Let's pray about it. It doesn't mean that a wound can't be healed just because of who inflicted it the first time. Maybe you're just not believing what we believe about Jesus because you don't want to. For whatever reason, you just it's just not for you. Well, can we still pray for you before you leave? Can we still talk to you about, we still want you here, we still love seeing you? I love seeing all your faces. Um, probably more than you love seeing mine, but let's talk about it. Let's find out what it is that's keeping you from believing what we believe about Jesus, and let's try to figure out, well, how can we change that? Because if all this is true, right? If Christianity is actually true, and Jesus actually is God incarnate and rose from the grave, you owe it to yourself to at least try to figure out what it is you believe about him. You owe it to yourself to at least try to figure out what it is you think about all these things. Because eternity is a very long time. If you don't know where you're going, it, it, you owe it to yourself to try to figure it out.
This podcast has been recorded live at Crosswalk Community Church. Services are held every Sunday at 10 a.m. at 925 South Telegraph Road in Monroe, Michigan.